Platform as a service can mean different things to different people. The most prominent feature of a PaaS is the ability to abstract away issues that every developer within an organization has to deal with. As an example, developers today don't need to fear scalability and load balancing issues as much as engineers of the 90s and the early 2000s. We can develop our applications without worrying about the scaling that is going on under the covers because of the platform-as-a-service functionality we have taking care of that for us. Sinclair Schuller is the CEO of Apprenda, and he joins the show today to discuss what is involved in building a PaaS, particularly one targeted at enterprises. Sinclair's company was started in 2007, just a few years after AWS got started, to put some context into how long Apprenda has been going on. We also talked about the potential Docker fork, for which Sinclair had many useful business and engineering perspectives. We're going to continue to discuss this in other episodes. We have discussed it a little bit in the past. This Docker fork is quite a salacious topic, so it's interesting to discuss. Hope you enjoy this episode. Sinclair Schuller is the CEO of Apprenda. Sinclair, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. So one of the trends that has been evident as I have done podcasts on Software Engineering Daily is that companies that were not originally thinking of themselves as software companies are being forced to develop a proficiency in software. And these are giant companies like State Farm or Nike or the New York Times or GE. And it, this is a common narrative these days. And there, there are many explanations, but... From your perspective, what are the macro trends that are pushing every company to become a software company? Yeah, it's actually a pretty fascinating discussion because I think it probably started with our smartphones, right? We, we all got accustomed to having software available at our fingertips for just about everything. And I think it created this, this intense amount of consumer interest around a software-driven world. And that propagated into demand that started hitting these large organizations, and they realized that their customers were asking them for software to do whatever it was that they that they wanted to do. And I think that, that pressure drove most of these companies to figure out that they need to do something to satisfy this customer demand. And I think we also got to see what it was like early on when you know we used to go rent videos at a place like Blockbuster, and then we started using Netflix, uh, what it was like to have... Uh, something disintermediated so aggressively where software just flipped an industry on its head and how much easier life was for all of us as a result. So, so I think it's really that consumer demand that's driven by this new modification in our behavior and how we use things and expect them to be available on our phone. And then also seeing some of the things that used to be difficult suddenly become easy just because software was involved. So that's probably what's, what's driving a lot of it, I think. Yeah, I like those hypotheses. Um, so when these older companies like a State Farm or a GE decide that they're going to become a software company, what are the changes that they make and how do these older companies become software companies? Yeah, so actually I'll start by stating that it's non-trivial for them to become software companies. Um, you know, they, they have to put a lot of thought into their internal processes, how they think about IT, how they think about software releases. Uh, but for some, especially in industries like banking and healthcare, they have to think about what does this mean in the context of how we're regulated and audited. 
So they really go through a pretty big process. I think first it's understanding their natural constraints. There are constraints they simply won't be able to shake, and that's definitely true in in heavily regulated industries. But then once that's been determined and they have an understanding of the constraints that can and can't be removed or dealt with, it becomes what do we do with our processes and people because you know they, they're inadequate when we look at uh, the approach that we've taken for 10 or 15 years as a big company in writing code. It simply can't be the way that we write the next generation of applications because it's far too slow and cumbersome to be competitive and release new, new uh, capabilities into the market. So I think that's the first step is understanding the constraints. Second step is really understanding which processes uh, are getting in the way. And I think a part of that that second step, the process discovery and knowing what to do based on how you do things today is what technologies can we start to invest in that connect with the way we do things and take all of the capabilities we have, all the IT investments that we have, and parlay them into a future where we can write applications a bit more quickly and get them out the door and actually meet this consumer demand that we were talking about before. When this shift is attempted within an older company, what are the internal frictions that arise when an enterprise tries to turn into a software company? Yeah, the, the internal friction is also something that obviously is of interest to me given given the space that we play in. So if you think about an enterprise for a second and, and what its uh, initial kind of posture is and what it's trying to do, it's generally trying to protect risk. And you can see this in the stock market. If a company releases earnings and they're up a percent or they hit their earnings, nothing really happens to their stock. But if they're five percentage points off of their earnings, then suddenly their stock gets hammered. So they're reluctant to do things that might be considered innovative but introduce risk into this empire empire of value that they've built. So I think the the internal friction is around how do we move fast but still maintain the safety that we need in order to reduce risk? Because as we've seen just in how stock prices fluctuate, we can't do things that are too risky and might hurt our earnings because we'll be punished for it. So so I think the, the very first thing is understanding that. They take a look at and evaluate what sort of things are we doing um, that we've historically done to prevent risk And how do we address that? How can we ensure that we can maintain the compliance and all of the regulatory adherence that we have, but still move quickly? But that generates just a tremendous amount of friction between the parties involved, which tend to be the developers and the business folks who are responsible for delivering on this future in those companies. And some of the traditional departments like IT or risk and compliance and auditing that have to deal with what happens when things go bad. And to them, moving fast and being agile and releasing new software quickly uh, almost implies that there's a lot of risk they have to take on. So I think that's really what drives the fundamental friction. Yeah, and what's kind of counterintuitive is that once these companies get moving faster, there is actually there's actually more safety. Um and 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 maybe it's difficult to get on board in in the first place with a faster pace but once you have a faster pace of development in place things are safer um and i mean my impression is that as software has moved into all of these different verticals that used to be the domain of older companies it is becoming more clear what the aspects of software are that everybody needs whether it's continuous deployment or infrastructure as code or containers. I I mean, recently we've done all these shows about like, we've done shows about drones and Slack and Uber and Internet of Things stuff and Google infrastructure and all these different things. But there are some commonalities between all of these types of companies and what they need out of a software platform that they're developing with. 
From your point of view, what are the tools that every company needs, whether it is a old company becoming <clears throat> a software company or a newer company? What are the tools that every company needs for its developer platform? Yeah, great question. So I think you almost have to think about the tools in the context of a supply chain, right? So the very first thing is you tend to think about uh, needing a modern development stack and development languages. We're seeing things like Go start to obviously take off. Uh, the reason that they're becoming important is that they make it a bit easier to do things like build microservice-based applications. So number one, um, understanding what the development stack that you actually want to use, uh, I think, is is the first consideration. It might be very different than what you've used historically as a big software company. It might not be, for at least the new apps, traditional Java app servers or traditional .NET or something to that effect. Those applications are still valuable, but your new development is different. Second, you know, thinking about that supply chain from the developer to a running app application, it becomes how do we think about build and CI/CD? So uh, we want a continuous delivery model in place. We want something that on the next commit to GitHub or next commit to a local Git repo uh, can build and deploy and actually get something in test and in front of people quickly. So I think on the CI/CD side, we're seeing a lot of investment in rethinking build systems and rethinking continuous delivery. And we're seeing shops, and it seems, it seems like for new shops, this is obvious, but for those existing enterprises, getting something like Jenkins in place uh, ends up becoming really important to make sure the supply chain moves quickly and smoothly so they can be more agile. And then once we think about leaving the CI/CD system and having an app up and running, it's about having a highly scalable fabric. What we're finding is that when most people build applications today, they have global reach. They can get their applications in front of millions of people very, very quickly. So they have to think about scalability inherently. They have to think about availability as a core foundational element of these new apps that they're building. Uh, so you know, our focus obviously is, is on Kubernetes and building past capabilities around Kubernetes and, and uh, cluster management in general. And having something like Kubernetes in place, we think is absolutely critical to the success of these companies and the success of the market as a whole just because we have transitioned into a model where any app can suddenly take over like wildfire and have millions of users very quickly. Definitely. I want to move towards that conversation. But let's start with a little history. Your company, Apprenda, builds a platform as a service for enterprises. And full disclosure, Apprenda is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily for discerning listeners. But why don't you explain what platform as a service means in this context platform as a service can mean a lot of things what is apprenda building or what have you built in the past yeah another great question because there's still a tremendous amount of confusion around this i think in the market uh, we refer to platform as a service we as a, as a market uh, tend to refer to platform as a service as a thing or a type of software but realistically it's a it's an operational model or a business model it's the idea that a group can offer an application platform to many other individuals who will consume that platform as a service, right? So it's really a service provider model. So nobody really builds PaaS, you run a PaaS. Uh, what we've built is an engine, a fabric, if you will, that an IT department can run uh, in their data center, across multiple data centers, or in public cloud, or a combination thereof so that an IT department can offer the developers at their organization a cloud platform that they can consume as a service. Developers in those organizations have access to APIs and portals and plugins for their IDEs or for Jenkins or TFS on the .NET side of things, uh, so they can consume this centralized cloud platform. 
uh, we started the company in 2007 with that intent. We just started recognizing that lots of IT departments uh, were trying to deal with, quote unquote, shadow IT, when the real answer was stand up your own cloud service that aggregates infrastructure from your data centers and potentially from public cloud and present your developers with an amazing alternative. Give them the ability to consume cloud infrastructure and build applications quickly through a, a platform that you run and operate and offer as a service. So that's really that's really our mission and our focus. And we're actually you know continually branching out and identifying use cases in the enterprise around how developers want to consume cloud platforms. And our focus is make sure that you know, we can revolutionize the way that these companies build and run software going forward. 2007, that was how many years into AWS? Oh, geez, maybe two or three. I think, yeah, I think that was two, two or three years. Was, I mean, what was the conversation around enterprises uh, at that time in terms of what they wanted out of a cloud? My, my, I mean, my impression is they really weren't even considering public cloud at that point, but the idea of a private cloud was becoming appealing, at least to the more savvy enterprises. Yeah, it certainly was. So when we first started Apprenda, we actually had a public cloud service and uh, we were working with developers directly, not in enterprises, but rather developers in small shops who were using our platform. And we started getting some enterprises who would use it and send emails like, hey, could we actually like download the software and just run this ourselves? We'd love to run a platform internally so that our developers can use it. And as we started engaging with more of those large enterprises, we started to realize that that was uh, one of the bigger opportunities. And we really wanted to help these large enterprises move to a cloud operating model as quickly as possible. So it's pretty early, actually. I mean, we, were, we built uh, container technologies for Windows in 2007 that would isolate CPU and memory and all those things at the kernel level. And we were tackling a lot of the challenges that we see becoming popular uh, you know, today and in the last 24 months. And it was fundamental to our business, but we decided to go from uh, a public service that we were offering to a private cloud product that we could sell to these enterprises so they could stand up their own. And, you know, they're putting a lot of consideration into running something on their own because they did face a lot of regulatory pressure and public cloud was really unknown to them. I think a lot has changed. That doesn't mean there isn't private cloud or hybrid cloud. You know, this isn't one of those scenarios where everything's moving to public. And even if it is, you still end up needing a platform layer on top of what we'd call pretty raw resources in something like AWS. So it's been it's been interesting, to say the least, to see how it's all transitioned in the past nine years. Now, are you saying that in 2007, the first thing that you built was basically an infrastructure as a service? It sounds like you built what was something similar to AWS at the time. It was actually a bit more like a, like a Heroku, I'd suppose, right? It was it was a higher order abstraction. We hid and still hide VMs and the OS instances from the developer. A developer, when interfacing with our platform, even back in 2007, just had uh, REST APIs and SOAP APIs at the time because SOAP was still something that was pretty popular. Um, they had web portals and they had integrations for their IDEs. So we never we never really built a system that exposed the underlying infrastructure to the developers, but rather this abstract surface area where they could say, here's my app, I want you to run it, and Apprenda would digest that package and turn it into running instances of the app under the hood, running in containers. Um, and we had a scalability fabric and dynamic load balancing and reconfiguration of load balancing. And it's something that you know, obviously carried into our DNA today. But um, as I was saying, it's, it's kind of interesting because we were pretty early in 2007 with a lot of this tech, and it was definitely an abstraction above the infrastructure as opposed to something like the AWS. And you you built that on your own servers? That was not the AWS arbitrage? No, yeah, it was on our own servers. Okay, well, so why, I mean, 
yeah, it's kind of a business question, but why did you end up going for the enterprise market rather than, uh, I mean, if you did have some individual consumers, why not go for the consumer market rather than the, the enterprise market? Was there just more traction with the enterprise? There was more traction, and um, we saw that they were facing the most challenge, right? When when building a business, I think one of the things that you typically want to do is you want to solve the biggest pain point that you encounter. And what we found was that the delta between how enterprises worked at that time and today even, and how they want to work, their end state of being a more cloud-native-like company, is a really big delta. And being able to fill that gap is huge. And then number two... Uh, I personally come from an enterprise background. I worked at Morgan Stanley as a developer. I understood the fundamentals of what it meant to write code in these big enterprises. And I think that the best businesses are built when you can take DNA that you have and that you've, you've extracted from your job and your experiences and turn it into a solution. So I could empathize with our buyers. You know, I'd, I'd walk into a conversation with an enterprise and the conversation wasn't some you know overly salesy pitch. It was, hey, let me walk you through what I experienced at Morgan Stanley is your life the same. And you'd get these head nods and grins. And it was obvious that we should take everything that we learned working in enterprise uh, as developers and bring it into a solution and have those meaningful conversations because we could solve their problems. So when there is an inter- if there's an enterprise out there that wants to build its own internal private cloud, the typical solutions that they have offered to them are things like they can stand up their own cloud foundry and manage it themselves. Um, where, I mean, co- contrast what Apprenda does. I mean, I guess I guess in, in contrast to that, Apprenda is just more, uh, it simplifies it more for the end users. Give me a depiction of how, it, how Apprenda contrasts with the other uh, internal private clouds that enterprises can stand up. Yeah, so so it's a pretty big contrast, and I think it's a purposeful contrast. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I come from an enterprise background, and the thing that was obvious to me as we started building the company and the technology is that it would be virtually impossible to walk into most enterprises and be dismissive of the existing IT investments they've made and dismissive of all the apps they've written. Most of these enterprises literally have thousands of apps in their app portfolio. And a lot of those, they need to move to a cloud-like model or their you know, fancy new microservices that they're building actually depend on workflows that are captured in traditional .NET apps and traditional Java apps. So there's a weakest link there. So one big way that we differentiate and contrast with other solutions is that we've invested a lot of energy in building IP that's compatible with existing IT assets. Um, so when you actually stand up an instance of Apprenda, you can put it on VMware, you can put it on Hyper-V, you can put it on bare metal. Uh, you can have it federate with all the identity systems that have been invented in the past 15 years. You don't have to use the newest identity system and uh, INAM system that, that exists today, but instead, you know, be compatible with what the enterprises are already running. The reason that's important is that it increases adoptability by reducing friction. Uh, you can walk in and say, look, what you've done in the past is something that you can carry forward as an investment in the private cloud that you're building. Number two, for the existing apps, we actually uh, can take an existing application, run it on the platform, and cloud-enable its architecture. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of anti-patterns in traditional applications that just don't work well with cloud. For example, uh, simple things like writing logs to disk. You can't 
get access to the disk if we abstracted away the OSs. And even if you could, and if you had 80 instances of your app running, you don't want to scurry around the infrastructure remoting into 80 uh, different machines to get logs for your app. So we'll intercept that, recognizing that logs are being written to disk and actually route it to a log aggregation system so you can get it in a nice streamed dashboard, right? Just simple things like that all the way to more complex things like we can introduce multi-tenancy into an app that wasn't built that way. So that's something that's very unique to Apprenda in that we can take a non-cloud-enabled app and cloud-enable its architecture with either totally for free, so to speak, or with pretty low friction on the part of the developer making some small modifications. And that's huge if you're going to drop something like this into an enterprise that has all these existing applications. Is the idea of a public cloud still unpalatable for these types of large enterprises? No, not at all. And it shouldn't be. Um, I think it's something that they should embrace uh, to the maximum that they can. You know, the fact of it is that it's not going to be that all their apps are going to be in public cloud. A big chunk of them might in the future. And they're still going to have a meaningful on-prem presence. So um, I'm finding that enterprises do, do feel it's way more palatable than it used to be. A lot of it has been that they've learned what uh, the perceived risks were and how they're actually not real risks. And they started adjusting their thoughts and their processes around that. And now is it more that companies are a little hesitant to move everything to public cloud so they're kind of doing a hybrid cloud thing as a transition maybe maybe it's not out of like irrational security concerns anymore now it's just out of holy smokes we don't want to move everything off of our servers right now just because that's a huge refactoring that's a huge effort yeah, that's a big part of it. It's a huge refactoring. The other part of it is that you still do have data locality issues. Um, and if you go to different countries, say go to the EU, for example, uh, there's a lot of sovereign data law that will drive data requiring that it sit in that country's boundaries and borders. Right. And the public cloud providers may not have a data center there. So there are a lot of practical reasons why you wouldn't see a wholesale migration of all the apps. Um, and I think that's that's perfectly fine and reasonable. And what's interesting to me is that if you look at other industries, you actually see the reverse happening, right? You, have, you see things going, quote unquote, on-premises, take uh, energy. Everybody wants solar uh, solar panels on their homes and they want you know windmills in their backyards to generate their own power local to their, to their needs instead of using a public utility. So I think that in most utility businesses, you'll end up in some sort of like hybrid mesh. And it's certainly true in private and public cloud. So you basically mentioned compliance there in the sense of the EU companies. I remember we did a show recently about, oh, what is that phone spam company? I forgot the name. But um, there was basically, they had a hybrid cloud for compliance reasons. So what, I mean, what kinds of compliance needs do these large enterprises have? Um, I guess both in in the United States and the EU, because that seems that sounds like a still that's an issue of why companies are are keeping on private clouds. Yeah, there are tons of compliance compliances, and it changes so much industry to industry. But for example, in defense and manufacturing, you might find that. Uh, a company has to adhere to ITAR and ear controls, which are effectively export controls specifying how applications can be accessed, where they can be deployed, um, because you may not want a terrorist state, for example, to have access to anything. So that's one example. You might find that in banking, Chinese walling between 
the uh, different parts of banking would require that you might not be able to commingle assets in certain data centers or HIPAA regulation in healthcare, or you travel overseas, as we discussed earlier, just uh, uh, boundaries, sovereign boundaries with respect to countries specifying that healthcare data for its citizens can't leave the borders of that country. So it just it shifts so much industry to industry, but each one of these has practical reasons for it. Uh, sometimes they're overly protective. Sometimes they're just right. And that's why I think, you know, just thinking it through and logically, it's highly unlikely that you're going to see a wholesale dismissal of all of these different concerns and constraints. So it's not, that's why I don't see it really as a transition phase, but rather just a practical part of an overall solution. Hybrid cloud has its place in the sense that public cloud consumption is useful for many applications that aren't uh, hampered by the constraints. But then for those that are, do you leave them on premises running on traditional infrastructure or do you modernize the infrastructure so that you can operate more efficiently? And that's what private cloud is really about, right? If we get rid of the word private cloud, it's about how do we build a technology layer above the infrastructure that makes the way we use that infrastructure more nimble, cleaner, more standard, and more efficient. Can you give me a picture of what Apprenda's platform is built with and then you know, we can ease into a conversation about Kubernetes and how the platform is evolving in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. So Apprenda itself is built with a combination of uh, the .NET stack on the Windows side with C Sharp. And traditionally, we've used a lot of Scala and Java on the Linux side. So we're effectively a, a cross-platform fabric in that we can stitch together multiple Windows and Linux instances into one big unified hosting layer. And uh, we built, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that ourselves starting in 2007. Now, as we started maturing the technology over the years, we started adding a lot of open source components. So, for example, Redis and Zookeeper are under the hood for coordination and caching. Uh, we have our own scheduler that depends on these things so that we can take workloads and place them appropriately where we think, uh, the, where we think machines are running healthiest for that particular application. And about a year and a half ago, I think it was two years ago, we decided that we wanted to build native Docker support so that you didn't have to use you know, just raw bits for your application pushing raw bits, but you can give us instead a uh, Docker image and we would run container instances for you. And as we started building that, we started building all the orchestration ourselves. And at that time, we started seeing that a lot of interesting open source frameworks started to pop up around orchestration and running Docker containers. And uh, it became pretty obvious that it was just no point in us investing in that, at least from an R&D perspective, because we understood that there were better ways of doing things, right? That's why we didn't build our own cache and we use Redis. So what we decided to do was actually adopt Kubernetes as the underlying fabric and scheduler for everything that's Docker-related, Linux-related, and we've slowly started incorporating all the various features into the platform. And I think what made it easy, an easy decision and you know, a good process for us to go through is that the way Kubernetes was built was pretty symmetric to how we thought about Apprenda. Uh, all the way down to looking at how things like labels work, and we had something similar called tags and Apprenda. So I think the fundamentals align really, really well. And for us, Kubernetes was is and was hands down the winner. So it became a very easy decision. You look at um, something like Kubernetes, and its DNA is fundamentally created with cloud scale in mind by an organization that is arguably the champion of cloud scale. So it's uh, I think for us the bet's obvious. Right, uh, the champion of cloud scale. You're obviously referring to Google there. Uh, how does Kubernetes, when you are evaluating schedulers, how does Kubernetes compare to Mesos and why did you choose Kubernetes over Mesos? 
Well, a couple of things. So one, I think Mesos was born originally um, focusing more on Hadoop clusters and so on. So its DNA originated from something different than arbitrary applications running in Docker containers. And whenever I see that, um, that tells me a lot about where project came from and where it likely will be going or what forces will shape its destiny going forward. It's not about Mesos being bad or good. It was just built with something else in mind and it slowly started shaping around what, uh, what the market is doing today with Docker. So number one, I think, the, the foundational elements of Kubernetes came from something that we deeply cared about, which is raw container usage. Number two, it uh, it's, I would say, a cleaner, simpler framework, right? It's not as big. And that's pretty important. Whenever you're building a platform technology, simplicity is key if you intend for it to work at scale, number one. And number two, if you intend for it to evolve cleanly as more features get tacked on, was it built with a set of abstractions and primitives that make a lot of sense? And the folks who designed Kubernetes, I think, put a lot of energy in thinking about those initial primitives and how those primitives can be used to build up a meaningful distributed framework. And again, that that initial design element of simplicity and having a core set of primitives that would be used to assemble the broader distributed framework uh, made a lot of sense to us, and it aligned so cleanly with how we thought about things in Apprenda historically that it became an obvious bed. And I think third is just how the communities evolved. When you look at the other distributed fabrics and schedulers and so on, I don't think anything has the community support that Kubernetes has today, ranging from vendors to individuals to you name it. Um, the CNCF has been a pretty good steward of a lot of this, and you combine those three elements, the the technical merits and the fact that community is so strong and so well, well uh, evolved is a really good reason for us to place our bets with Kubernetes. Yeah, very true. Um, so when you decided you were going to start using Kubernetes, what was your thoughts around what needed to be replaced in Apprenda and how was that swap going to work? Yeah, so that's a that's another interesting one because nothing really had to be replaced per se. So we had we had this orchestration work that we had built around Docker, and it's still you know really good stuff. But that was this, the linkage point. We knew that when customers were using Docker, there was obvious uh, better underlying DNA, and we would route that to Kubernetes. So what we effectively end up with is a hybrid scheduler in Apprenda that understands the input workload and can determine which part of the scheduler to use. In this case, it can say, hey, go ahead and, and use Kubernetes. Um, so for us, it wasn't a decision of how do we prune Apprenda, but rather how do we map the constructs that we have in the workflows that the developers engage with as it pertains to Docker, as it pertains to apps running in Linux, and map those to Kubernetes so that there's a clean handoff. And then Apprenda's responsibility becomes to, uh, to attach all of this existing app IP around Kubernetes so the rest of the applications that aren't containerized can run cleanly side by side. Uh, so it, it didn't really affect us in a meaningful way where we had to look at this and say, what are we replacing? It was mostly additive. These big enterprises, like how aggressively are they adopting containers? I think really aggressively. Uh, the number of times that it comes up as a question in any customer conversation that we have or in conversations like this is just through the roof. Uh, I think that we're seeing people use it in production, using containers in production aggressively. We're seeing enterprises use it in labs in a meaningful way where they have a clear production path. So it's uh, it's pretty surprising in the past 24 months exactly how aggressive enterprises have gotten. Now, 
has it replaced VMs yet or has it, you know, kind of revolutionized the production landscape entirely? No, there's, that's, that's happening. It's in, it's a work in progress, but, uh, to say that it isn't used, I think, would be would be pretty silly. And uh, there's just a tremendous amount of energy being invested in not just evaluation, but actual production usage. And I mean, what kinds of enterprises are are wanting Kubernetes support? What what kinds of enterprises are are wanting to um, adopt that in addition to just their their regular container workloads? I mean, honestly, it's it's all of them. They're when they're looking at containers, they're trying to, and this is across industries. They're trying to figure out what do we use as the underlying data center OS to to deal with all of this. We have people who are throwing containers over the fence to IT. We don't know what to do with it, or there are dev teams that are powering their own stacks and trying to figure out how they're going to run containers at scale and run them in a flexible way. And they immediately conclude that they need some layer to do that with. And uh, the amount of interest in Kubernetes is unparalleled. So I think that's something that's obviously beneficial to us. But just for the community as a whole, in order for containers to take off in production, Kubernetes has to exist and it has to get adopted. And it's driving so much interest that that it's mind-blowing. Yeah, we had this show recently about Golf Now, which is an older company that adopted Kubernetes. And it sounded like it was basically a small team within a larger company that said, hey, let's try to experiment with this. And then once they got something small working, it sort of caught on with almost like a network effect within the company where, where people were like, this sounds really cool. And then, they, and then other people adopted it and it just grew within the company. What are the typical patterns for how an older enterprise onboards with Kubernetes? Yeah, so we've seen, I would say, two two patterns. One is the one that you just described, which is a dev team building something unique and novel, usually a microservices-based app that they're uh, releasing to the market, probably to consumers. And they're saying, all right, hey, this is, this is our kit. This is what we're doing. We're using Docker. We're using Kubernetes. And it is successful. And suddenly, the successful project gets attention. And then others want to adopt similar methodologies and similar stack decisions because they say, hey, if it worked for them, why wouldn't it work for us? So what you described, I think, is one, one pattern, one use case. A second one is the IT department itself. What's happening is that some of these development shops are building uh, apps using containers. And they show up to their IT department saying, hey, we, we need to run this. Like, Do you have anything? for us. And the IT department scratches their head and they say, well, no, but maybe we should start standing up a Kubernetes cluster so that so that we can support your needs, right? So we can offer you some capability to run the apps that you're building. In most traditional enterprises, it's still the case that the IT department is responsible for app ops and running the app, the application, whereas the developers simply build it. Or I shouldn't say simply, it's, not, it's a non-trivial task, obviously, but uh, they then have to hand that application over to the IT staff who then takes on that operational responsibility. And that's the other entry point, which is almost a, a natural internal pressure to satisfy this need to run the apps, but the developers either don't want to or don't have the authority to run the app themselves. Got it. So now that listeners are familiar with Apprenda, they understand your relationship to Kubernetes. It's obviously an important part of Apprenda. I would love to talk about the rumored Docker fork because um, there have been listeners that are curious about this and... um, I was talking to your colleague, Joseph Jacks, who mentioned that you would probably have some thoughts on this. So what are your thoughts on this Docker fork discussion? Is it is this a real thing or is this just a rumor that went wild? What's your perspective? 
Yeah, I actually just wrote a post about this that went up today on on the Apprenda blog. And it's interesting because you have to understand the root cause. And, and what I posit in the post is that when a technology like Docker becomes a primitive, literally like an architectural primitive in the industry, it, it happens to become a primitive because it's easy to adopt and it has a neutral position, which is how Docker the project really was early on. And it caught on like wildfire and it became a fundamental architectural element in how everybody thought about cloud. And then you end up with an organization that for various reasons and because of various pressures has to monetize that that base that it's created, that kind of, you know, that, that adoption created. And that monetization conflicts directly with the original democratization, right? Like to democratize something, you have to be neutral and suddenly you have to, you have to start making money. And uh, that forces an organization like Docker to move up stack and figure out how to monetize the remaining layers above the, the primitive they created. And suddenly you end up competing with people in your community or making decisions that are, you know, a bit more selfish or focused on, on your needs. And it's not bad, you know, Docker is in a tough spot. They're trying to figure this sort of stuff out. But inevitably what happens is there's enough disenfranchisement where people are saying, well, geez, we need to take control of the project. I mean, to a degree, that's kind of the spirit of open source. The idea being that uh, you have to do what's right for the community, not right for a single party. So, you know, is it real or can it be real? Absolutely, it could be real. I don't know, you know, if anybody's pursuing it aggressively or purposefully yet. And I think that the community has to do what's right for the community, whether that's staying the course and, you know, assuming that Docker, the company and the project are going to coexist in, in a meaningful yet neutral way. Or if they have to fork because they've made these bets on Docker, the container, and they feel uncomfortable, they'll, they'll do that. So I don't think it's an unreasonable outcome. And I don't think it's necessarily a negative one for, for Docker, the company, even if that were to happen. It's just how these things evolve. Right. And so for listeners who are not totally familiar with this, my understanding of the situation is that Docker, the product, was modified to have command line built-in support for the Swarm orchestration tool, which is supported, well-supported by Docker, the company. And so the, the impression of the open source community was, wait, why is this support for an orchestration layer getting built into this command line tool that should just be for the Docker container itself? This is just bloatware, and it's going to incentivize or not incentivize, well, it will incentivize people to just go with the default orchestrator and then they'll start using Swarm and they will never try out Kubernetes or Mesos or whatever else. Is that accurate? Yeah, that that's kind of what sparked all of this in the past, I'd say, whatever, couple of months. And the reason that Swarm was embedded, if you think about it, is it is to essentially try and commoditize the next layer. If Docker, the company, can own that from a monetization point of view, then all of these people who made these bets around Docker as a primitive, they're kind of, you know, they're out of luck at that point because, like you said, it's, it's embedded and just go ahead and use it. It turns out that it might not be the best architecture for, for a lot of use cases. So I think that there's still a quality aspect or dimension to this, but that what you described is certainly what sparked a lot of this. Why is that, you know, baking in the swarm orchestration layer why is that okay governance-wise? Like, if, if this is an open-source community, I, I don't know much about open-source governments. Why, why was that acceptable to the Docker community? Yeah, I, I would argue that you know, I'm probably the wrong person to ask with respect to whether it makes sense from a governance point of view. Joseph certainly would have a lot of opinions on that. Um, but just looking at it a bit more abstractly and thinking about it from a 
community and business implication point of view, it's not well accepted, right? So the project may have accepted it and who knows why it was accepted and pushed through. But if you look, everybody who's participating or observing this has some level of, of disenfranchisement that they've displayed. So I don't think that this was something that is considered okay or accepted by the community as a whole. If it was, we wouldn't have these issues right now. And my impression is that the 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 people who are raising serious concerns are, well, many of them at least, are some of the different Kubernetes vendors. Um, you know, I, I think you might list yourself in that regard. I guess I'm curious, what are the business models of different Kubernetes vendors and how big is the Kubernetes vendor ecosystem as a business sector? How big do you see this area growing? Yeah, so, I mean, Kubernetes is is a game-changing technology. I think it's pretty clear, but it's not about Kubernetes business models. It's about use cases, right? And and it really goes back to the early part of the conversation, which is what we're finding is that IT departments are saying, hey, we want to run a service for the 5,000 developers at our company to use so they can build and deploy apps quickly. Uh, or we're finding development teams operating on their own, uh, and they're saying, hey, I, I've built new applications. I want to run them on a stack that I control, and they're choosing Kubernetes to satisfy that use case. So it just so happens that Kubernetes is the best tech on earth to really satisfy those two use cases. So the business models right now are about, at least in the enterprise, providing technology on-premises that either is a PaaS software engine to enable a PaaS-like service inside the enterprise, or a use case around cluster management that an individual team or project owners might use. And those could be massive projects, right? It could be like a consumer website that touches 100 million people. So they're not, they're not small or trivial. They're just different use cases. And the business models tend to anchor around that and monetizing the consumption of the underlying cluster, how much infrastructure it's using uh, and how many applications it's powering. I think what you're saying there is that Kubernetes is somewhat similar today to where Linux was in the early days of Linux, basically because, like, you know, saying Linux today is almost meaningless because you could be referring to Android, you could be referring to some IoT device, you could be referring to Red Hat, um, and that's probably where we're going to be with, well, it could be where we'll be in, with Kubernetes in five, ten years, because there's so many different use cases for a distributed system orchestration layer. Yeah. And I mean, look, we, we view ourselves as, as the platform company. So our perspective tends to be that uh, there'll likely be many, many specialized types of platforms in the future, scientific compute and analysis platforms. Um, you'll find potentially specialized healthcare platforms, general purpose platforms like PaaS or cluster management, and Kubernetes will power all of those, right? So so Kubernetes is where Linux was in the early days. Uh, I think the difference, though, is that we're going to find these highly verticalized use cases uh, where Kubernetes is at the core, providing the distributed fundamentals, and then people build on top of that uh, vertical specialization around maybe industry-specific use cases or horizontal use cases. And you know that was that wasn't true with Linux early on. It was predominantly server and desktop, but then you started getting embedded Linux and all this other stuff that I think turned it into something a bit more like what we're seeing with Kubernetes now. So, what would be the best case scenario or the worst case scenario for how this? fork situation could work out from your point of view or what do you think we'll see you know i think i think we'll probably see the community be forced into a spot where 
it may have to keep the project as is, but the behavior from all parties, including Docker, the company, will be a bit more rational and thoughtful around the evolution of the overall community because, frankly, it could be very damaging. Um, so I, I think that's what we'll see. Uh, but like I said earlier, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility of seeing a fork or uh, seeing another container tech adopted for some reason. But I, I do believe that there are a lot of people invested in Docker, and I do believe that Docker, the company, is in a tough spot, and they're just you know they're trying to balance the need to build a business with the need to build a community, and they're making decisions that they think are are appropriate, and they're getting some backlash for it, and you'll probably get course correction as a result. How have you felt about the way that? that Docker has been handling these situations. Um, I mean, there was, so I'm not an expert on the history, but I know there was this container, there was this, you know, issue with the rock, you know, CoreOS rocket versus Docker uh, that I think was resolved with some sort of olive branch at one Docker con. And then, uh, you know, there's more recently, there's this stuff around the OCI and I guess Docker potentially, breaking compliance with the OCI what is do you think docker has docker acted in ways that you think are are inappropriate or do you, do you think it's more just like it this is totally okay and to be expected of a company that has received venture backing and arguably has benefited the community because of its venture backed um, investments in open source technology yeah, I don't think they've handled it terribly well, frankly, right? I mean, when you look at most of the pushback from the general community, it's been, why don't we focus on some standards that we can all agree on, and then you can be off on your way and, and do whatever you want. And they view that as a compromise that will somehow hinder their ability to, to be creative or do new things. But it worked, speaking of Linux, it worked pretty well, well for Unix and Linux to a degree, right? Think of POSIX. I mean, I think it was, what, before 97, POSIX didn't exist as a unified standard, but lots of elements of POSIX still existed, and there were a bunch of substandards. But it helped a lot of the vendors evolve in a way that... Uh, ensured some level of meaningful compatibility. And of course, the community drove a lot of that as well. Uh, so I don't think it's unprecedented. And having some level of standardization or community agreement around what is considered the fundamentals is okay. And if Docker, the company, wanted to deviate from that and do some special stuff, it could do so within its own products and IP. But to effectively force something into the project that could harm other members of the community doesn't make any sense. And, and I think the way they've handled the response wasn't the best. They could have spent a little time acknowledging that, hey, you know, maybe we should we should think about things a little differently. So, you know, I, I somewhat empathize with Docker just because they are in such a bind. I mean, I, I don't know um, I don't know what else they could do business model wise you know it's hard it's hard to look at the the business models of the open source companies of the past and and uh fit that onto docker like when you think about cloudera's business model or red hat's business model those don't seem like obvious form fits for how docker the company could make money and so I, I do empathize with them somewhat like what i don't know what they're supposed to do to live up to their billion dollar valuation do you have any, do you have any ideas on that like what would you do if you're ceo of docker yeah that's it's <laughs> a big question um I, I empathize also in fact that's the exact word i used in at the end of my blog post that i published today uh, because I think they're in a tough spot. I don't, I don't criticize the decisions in some negative way. I under, certainly understand as a CEO of a company, 
the pressures that you have from you know your customers and your investors in the market to make the right decisions and also build meaningful revenue, especially in the case of a billion dollar valuation. I, I think that it's almost a, a bit of a diametrically opposed type scenario where you have something that became so popular because it was easy to adopt and it became a primitive, as I mentioned earlier, that people looked at and said, this is now one of the building blocks of cloud. But then you have to monetize it. That doesn't happen that often. It's not even. Uh, it, you're right. It's unfair to compare it to the previous open source projects, because it's something that was adopted by so many people as a fundamental primitive, and you're stuck then because anything that you do to monetize it uh, violates the very core tenets that let it become a primitive with everybody else, and, and that you know that is what creates this friction that we keep seeing in the community. So what would I do? I mean, geez. I don't know. That's one of those things where I'd have to be away in a cabin for a week uh, <laughs> by a lake to think about. Well, and the, the company's gotten so big and they've raised so much money, they can't just be like, yeah, we're just going to be a support company or like a very straightforward support company for just Docker containers. And then that's, no. made, that's of course, made all the more accentuated by the fact that the money and the real support complexities seem to be in the the orchestration layer and the interactions between the orchestration layer and the docker containers themselves so if companies are having problems with the orchestration layer they're not going to call up docker they're going to call up the orchestration layer companies <laughs> right well and, and that, that's a fair point i think the closest thing that they have you know the closest approximation to a business that they could build would be just doing what they're trying to do with the container as a service stuff but doing so doing that without violating the integrity of the project and trying to bake in things that put, you know, try essentially using the project as a weapon, like they shouldn't, they shouldn't be doing that. So I think fundamentally, they have to play in the orchestration space, they have to play in the quote, unquote, as a service space, building a tech stack they can use to deliver containers uh, inside the enterprise. But beyond that, you're right, you know, nowadays, especially building a support business as your primary business is doomed to fail like there's there's no there's no economic way to build a successful company um i think at scale doing that okay so what is the container as a service strategy because i i remember i was at DockerCon when they announced this i didn't really understand what they were talking about or wasn't listening or something is that like is it like a serverless thing that they're making now, essentially, imagine that, that you're uh, running infrastructure with the intention of being able to accept and run raw containers from developers or others in your organization. How would you do that? Well, you'd build a software layer that would sit on top of infrastructure and that would allow, in a multi-tenant way, multiple parties to access that, that stack and deploy and run containers. Um, the problem is that you know it's, it's simply kind of... Um, I would look at maybe some of the old VM technologies around letting you spin up VMs. It's kind of boring, I would say. Right? It doesn't present that much value other than you can give people easy access to running containers in IT. And that, I don't think, is revolutionary. So the reason it's challenging for anybody in that space is that you are competing then with platform-as-a-service vendors who have all of these higher-order abstractions that can provide developers a bunch of value uh, whether it's multi-tenancy as part of your application architecture or uh, services that can be attached to apps as a result of some sort of service broker tech that you build around it, you're really coming in with something that is a bit too fundamental nowadays and too basic to provide meaningful value. So their container as a service strategy, this idea that you're going to have you know, a platform just doling out containers and running container instances for developers just seems too simplistic to build a business out of. So is that Docker Hub that you're referring to? Is the container as a service thing Docker Hub? 
Yeah, that, that's that's what they were focusing on as their as their container as a service. Um, so, I I think I think that's where a Docker Hub just isn't adequate from what we see in the context of what most are trying to do. Right. So, so do you see Kubernetes becoming more? As I, I was having a conversation yesterday with Phil Estes from IBM, and he was talking about how there have been some efforts around making Kubernetes because right now Kubernetes is. I think tight, somewhat tightly coupled to Docker. You basically have to use Docker containers on Kubernetes unless you're using one of these Kubernetes forks or different flavors that are that allow you to run with Rocket or allow you to run with any OCI compliant container. How do you see that sh- shaking up uh, as time goes on? Well, I think both from a technical point of view and. Um architectural abstraction point of view, it makes sense to not be tightly coupled to Docker. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of things going on in the community right now that will let you run, for example, raw application bits one day or, you know, use something like Rocket on Kubernetes. And I think it's a logical outcome. If you're truly a clean OS abstraction layer, you have to consider what the consumers of that layer are going to be using and not force them down a single path, so long as it doesn't compromise the simplicity that we talked about earlier. So I think think it's a natural outcome that it's not a Docker-dependent project or a Docker-focused project. Uh, And I'd be surprised if in short order, say the next 12 to 24 months, we don't see some of that change. All right. Well, um, I want to begin to wrap up. What's what's in the future for Apprenda? So, I mean, for us, it's really putting a lot of emphasis on how this uh, this world is evolving. You know, we're we're putting a lot of energy in identifying the use cases that we talked about earlier. What are the patterns that people are thinking about when it comes to consuming cloud and running containers and building new apps? Uh, so what's in the future for Apprenda is really branching out into those use cases as aggressively as possible. We, When we walk into an enterprise and have a conversation with developers and IT people, we start to realize that the way that they're thinking about running containers, building new apps, and consuming cloud infrastructure uh, fits three or four specific buckets. So how can we as a company to evolve to support each of those and ensure that we're satisfying the customer need, number one? And number two, it's keeping tabs on how software development is changing, right? And I mean that both at the architectural level, what stacks are being used, and also thinking about uh, how the software development process is changing over time. We're seeing that people are focusing a lot of energy on revamping their SDLC, and how do they think about Agile, and how do they think about that in the context of their 5,000 developers, and what can we do as a company and as a technology stack to plug into that and make it easier for these enterprises to make that transition. Um, you know, it's, my, it's my genuine belief that if these enterprises do make it uh, through this transformation and build digital success and kind of get these uh, these new cloud apps out the door, it's actually good for, for the world in general, right? Like we're seeing what's happening as we democratize access to software and to think that we as a company can participate in that and uh, force some of that transformation is pretty cool. So for us, it's figuring out how these enterprises are thinking about transformation over time and how do we continually help them. And I think there's a lot of learning still need, that needs to be done uh, as, we, as we continue to grow as a company. Now, do, are Google and Amazon beginning to break into this space or are they or are they more offering things that are well, I guess I guess they they, they can't that's because it's totally different because you're just you're you're focused on private cloud well pri- yeah we are but private let's uh you know to, to be very specific on the taxonomy is a visibility concern you can have a private cloud on public infrastructure it just means that uh, you have one organization that's allowed to use that in a non-shared way on-prem 
is I guess the the word we're looking for. And in our uh, case, right. yeah, we don't we don't really care, right? Like you could put a Prenda on AWS entirely, and if that's where you want to run your app platform, go nuts. Um, it's still a good thing for us because we have customers and using it. So AWS and Google and Microsoft with Azure, I think one thing's become true. They're realizing that if they don't accept all the other platform technologies into the tent, then they're missing out on opportunities to attract more customers to, to their clouds. So I'm finding that although they're building additional services and capabilities for developers to use, it's still about raw infrastructure consumption. So anything they can do to encourage companies like Apprenda to work with them or you know any other, any other vendor in this space, the better off they are because that's access to more customers that may not want to use their technologies directly, but instead are committing to tech stacks like ours. Right. This is just why, the same reason why, well, similar to why Heroku doesn't really compete with AWS, just a different different market segment. Yep. Okay, well, Sinclair, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation, and I also want to thank you for being a supporter of Software Engineering Daily through the sponsorship. You're, you know, one of the people that makes makes it possible for me to do this, so I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. New Relic is partnering with MLB for the Basis Coded Technology Challenge. Small teams will have the opportunity to hack at the convergence of sports and technology while utilizing proprietary APIs and private data provided by MLB. The finalist teams will be flown to the World Series for an overnight software development competition. Check out more details at basescoded.com.